you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of John. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We'll be ending this chapter today, Lord willing, and then we are going to head into chapter 8. But here we are at the end of chapter 7, verses 40 through 52. I've entitled this morning's message as The Right Answer. There in your bulletin, you'll find uh, some uh, notes. If you'd like to follow along, you'll see that on the PowerPoint. And then uh, right before I start reading, I just wanted to remind our new members class, we are having class today from 3 to 4.15 up in the uh, fireside room at 3 o'clock this afternoon, so don't forget about that. So here we are, John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52, the right answer. The Apostle John writes this, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning and we pray that you would give us insight into this passage of Scripture as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's been saying and we look at the responses of the people that you would give us wisdom today to see Christ in all of his glory, to realize that no one ever taught like this man, that there is no one like him risen from the dead, who still speaks to us through the Word. And so change hearts and lives today through the power of the gospel, through the preaching of the Word of God, and as your Spirit works in our hearts, may you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I read a story this past week about an associate pastor who was going to do a little children's sermon at the beginning of a service on a Sunday, and he wanted to kind of have the kids participate with a lot of excitement and enthusiasm and poise. He wanted to teach them things about our great God. He also maybe even wanted to impress the parents a little bit that he could elicit good, solid spiritual answers from these kids as they were going through their time at the beginning of the service. And so as they were getting started, this associate pastor asked the children a question. He simply asked them, what is gray, has a long bushy tail, and gathers nuts in the fall? One five-year-old raised his hand and said, I know the answer should be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. (laughs) Well, perhaps to five-year-olds in a Sunday worship service, Jesus should be the answer for everything. Five-year-olds believe that you can never go wrong in Sunday school if you raise your hand and say, Jesus. You may think that the answer is obvious, but it could be wrong. Throughout John chapter 7, we have been seeing a similar situation. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus' brothers assumed that Jesus wanted fame and public recognition and therefore should go down to the Feast of Booze at the very beginning and flaunt his stuff. 
but they were wrong. It seemed obvious to the crowds at the feast that the mystery that surrounded Jesus suggested that he was some kind of deceiver, but they were wrong. It seemed obvious to the Jewish religious leaders that no one could read their inner thoughts and know their murderous intentions, but they were wrong. The festival pilgrims saw that the authorities did not arrest the prophet they seemed to hate so much, and so they concluded that perhaps they had become believers as well, but they were wrong. The Jewish leaders heard Jesus say he was going to some place where they could not find him, and so they assumed that he would teach the Greeks, but they were wrong. Jesus' enemies thought they knew him, his family, and his origins, but they were wrong. It seemed obvious that Jesus' message could be false since only the ignorant mob took it seriously, but they were wrong. Sincere belief in what appears to be obvious to you based on your thoughts or based on your experiences or based on your feelings is no excuse for not searching the truth which can only be found in Christ. The right answer doesn't belong to cultural trends, popular opinions, or to the Supreme Court. The right answer is not to be found in secular science, social sciences, or in psychology. The right answer is not obtained through self-actualization, self-denial, or self-esteem. The right answer is not found in the consensus of the experts, starting with the words, studies show. The right answer is not even found with inside of you. The right answer for all of life's questions and hardships and difficulties really is Jesus. It really is that simple. Jesus is the answer for your life. Only Christ can save you. Only Christ can sanctify you. Only Christ can help you make sense of the mess that you're in. Only by knowing Christ and living for Christ can you really have the answer. Life's ultimate question is not, who should I marry? College students. Right? Life's ultimate question is not, how do I make a lot of money? Businessmen. Life's ultimate question is not, uh, how can I find happiness in this life apart from Christ? Life's ultimate question is, what will I do with Jesus? What will I believe about Him? What will I believe about what He taught Will I surrender my life to the only one who can give living water? So there are many responses to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his teaching. And my goal today is to help you understand the right answer. You see, Jesus has been teaching here at the end of the feast. If you look back at verse 37 here in John chapter 7, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, what I want us to do today is look at four responses to this statement that Jesus said that if you're thirsty, you can only find living water in him. And if you partake of Christ, out of you will flow rivers of living water. There's four possible responses that we see in verses 40 through 52. Here's the first response we see to this statement of Christ. Number one, those who received Jesus. There were some there in the crowd that day on the last day of the Feast of Booths who received the words of Christ. Look at verse 40 in the beginning of verse 41. It says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. 
kind of one and the same. What we're seeing here is these people are receiving the teachings of Christ. They're believing in what Jesus said. And so the first blank, if you're taking notes, is simply this. Jesus is the prophet. For these people, these who are receiving the teachings of Christ, they really do believe that Jesus is the prophet. Now, this acknowledgement, this really is the prophet, is an obvious reference to Moses and what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. Turn there with me, if you will. This is probably one of the most famous passages in the entire Old Testament, quoted by Moses and recited a couple of times in the New Testament, pointing to the fact that Jesus is the prophet. Here's what Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So right there we know that the Messiah, the Christ, has to be Jewish. He has to be a brother, part of the Jewish nation. He would be kind of in the line of Abraham. We get more specific as we go through our text, but in verse, let's skip down to verse 18. It says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, I appreciate this prophecy by Moses because we understand here that God will raise up another prophet. Moses is not the ultimate mediator. Moses is not the ultimate authority. Christ is. Only Christ can get you all the way to the promised land. Think about Moses who even failed in his pride when he struck the rock on the second occasion saying, must we bring water from this rock? And in that moment, God determined he would never enter into the promised land. He died on the west side of the river, or excuse me, the east side of the river, right, on Mount Nebo, and was never able to get in because of his sin. So Moses is not the ultimate mediator or the ultimate prophet. That position belongs only to Christ. Now, people in the New Testament were expecting a prophet at some point. They even got a little confused about John the Baptist, who, as he was going through his ministry, was so powerful and so different than the other prophets they've been listening to, that in John chapter 1, verse 21, they approach John the Baptist and say, what then, are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They asked him, then, why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And so John the Baptist assured us that he was not the prophet. He's a mighty person, a mighty messenger of the gospel, preparing the way for the Lord. But it was John the Baptist who said, there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. It was John the Baptist who said, I am baptizing you with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It was John the Baptist who said, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I am not the groom. I'm simply his best man. I'm, I'm here to bring the church to Christ. It was John the Baptist who said, he must increase and I must decrease. And so we see John the Baptist is not the prophet. He does not fulfill that prophecy. Shortly after Jesus fed the 5,000, some of the Jews started thinking, well, maybe Jesus is the prophet. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 14, again, after the feeding of the 5,000, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. In fact, after the ascension, there was Peter who was preaching there in Jerusalem, who in Acts chapter 19 talks to the people and said, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And in that passage in Acts chapter 3, Peter is pretty much saying, Jesus was the prophet. You guys missed it. You missed it. He came. 
He fulfilled all the prophecy that was ever given about him. He was the prophet. Peter saying that it already taken place. And so some at the feast here at the Feast of Booths on that last day, on that great day when Jesus stands up and shouts out who he is and what he's all about, some of the people received him. And they received him by saying, you know what? This really is the prophet. He's here. Not only did some people recognize that, but your next blank says others saw that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Christ. Look at verse 41. Others said, this is the Christ. Now, to the surprise of some, Christ is not Jesus's last name. That was like an epiphany for me when I was in probably grade school and somebody's like, that's not his last name. I'm like, then what was his last name? You know? which we still don't have an answer for. But we know his first name, his given name is Jesus, and we understand Christ to be a title, right? It comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning the anointed one or the chosen one. And so this is the Greek equivalent of what the Hebrew word Messiah is. And so in the New Testament, we have Christos, or he is the Christ, signifying that Jesus was sent from God to be a king or a deliverer. He is the anointed one. He is Jesus, the Messiah. In ancient Israel, when someone was given a position of authority, oil was poured out on his head to signify that he was set apart for God's service, whether you be a king or a priest or a prophet anointing was for such an occasion. An anointing was a symbolic act to indicate God's choosing. And although the literal meaning of anointed refers to the application of oil on the head, it can also refer to the consecration of God. The Bible says Jesus was anointed with oil on two separate occasions with two different women. You remember those stories. But there's also the anointing of the Holy Spirit given by Peter. Again, as he's talking to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, Peter says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. So we see Jesus is the anointed one. He's been anointed with the Holy Spirit. This title again of Christ, the anointed one, the one who fulfills all Old Testament prophecies. He's the chosen Savior who came to rescue people from their sins. He's the King of Kings who's coming back again to set up His kingdom on earth. And so some of these people are receiving this. They're like, wow, he is the prophet. He is the Christ. Maybe they're even remembering all the signs that have been done up to this point in the gospel of John. Jesus had turned the water into wine. He had healed a ruler's son. He had healed the lame man by the pool at Bethesda. He had fed the 5,000. He had walked on the water. All of this pointed to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Maybe not only were they looking at the works of Jesus, but they really were considering the words of Jesus, who throughout the gospel continues to point to the fact that he is the Christ. Maybe the most famous one would be as Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well of Samaria. Again, an amazing story about how this woman who was an adulterer and was a Samaritan, this is the first place Christ decides to reveal himself to humankind verbally as the Christ. Do you remember what happened? The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What an amazing statement. Here Christ claims to be the Christ. He claims it to this woman in the middle of Samaria by the well who just desires that she would come to saving faith. He declares to be the Christ. And there are other passages you can look at there where Jesus essentially is saying, I am the Christ. 
And so there are some there that day who received Jesus Christ as Lord. There's some there on that day who received the fact that Jesus is the prophet. They believed with all their hearts that Jesus was the Christ. They received God's Son as who He really is, fully God and fully man. And they were converted by God-given faith to trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Well, let me ask you this morning, what have you done with the Lord Jesus? Have you received Him as the prophet? Have you received Him as the Christ? Do you believe in what Jesus has done? Do you believe in the words that He spoke? Do you have the right answer to life's ultimate question? Because in order to receive Him today, you must repent of all of your sin. You must trust in Him with all of your heart. You can't just see Jesus as a good man or as a good teacher or someone who is kind to others. You must see Jesus as the prophet, as the priest, and as we know, He's also the King, right? He is the Christ. He is the Anointed One. We must come to Him today by repentance and faith of all of our, all of our sin and all of our hearts. We're trusting in Him And when that happens, there's a measurable change in your life. When someone comes to Christ, it marks a man. When someone comes to Christ, it changes a woman. When someone comes to Christ, it reorients your desires. You no longer are living primarily out of the nature of the flesh, but you're living out of the Spirit. You begin to long for the things of God. You begin to long to spend time in His presence on your face before God. You begin to long communion and intimacy, and companionship. You began to long to spend time with your best friend. And I just want to ask you this morning, has that happened to you? We're not looking here in this church for people who have a lot of head knowledge. We're not caring so much about what you make in your Bible class, what kind of grade you make. What we care about is, is your heart riveted by the fact that He is the King, that He is risen, that He is the Christ, and we owe all our allegiance to Him. And the only joy you'll ever find in this life is knowing Him and making Him known in your marriages and in your dating life and in your free time. He is the Christ. Are you living for Him in that way? I hope that you are. The second way that people respond that we see here in this passage is simply this. There's some who received Him, but secondly, there's those who rejected Him. Outright rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 41 The second half says, but some said, is this the Christ, or excuse me, is the Christ to come from Galilee? So your next blank in your notes there is they're confused, confused about the origination of Christ. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law are saying, well, wait a second, how could this be the Christ? This guy, Jesus, is from Galilee. In fact, if you were to look at the original language, this question is asked in a way that expects a negative answer the way that the grammar works if you are translating this verse. We see that reflected in the NASB translation where it says, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? That's a a negative way of saying it. It's a scornful way of saying we know that this Jesus can't possibly be the Christ because he's from Galilee. His hometown of ministry was Capernaum. He came down from that area. We even heard he grew up in Nazareth and nothing good can come out of Nazareth, can it? There was kind of this negative thought about even Galilee. It was to the north. It was considered to be uneducated in comparison with Jerusalem that was the hub of the Jewish faith. Galilee was composed of farmers and fishermen and those that had never been taught like the brilliant scholars in Jerusalem. 
And so they thought, well, nothing can good can come from Galilee. That would be like us today maybe saying, well, nothing good can come from San Bernardino. I mean, nothing good can come from Barstow, can it? <laughs> Forgive me if you're from there. All right, those are great places, but I'm just saying in our culture, sometimes they get a bad rap where we think, oh, that's the armpit. Somebody told me this past week that uh, Barstow is the armpit of California. All right, I, I've been through there, and I think that might be true. But, you know, the idea... <laughs> The idea is sometimes we just think, can anything good come? So they're trying to put this thinking in our mind, say, well, nothing good can come from Galilee. In fact, at the end of chapter 7, look at verse 52, where they say again, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, of course, if the chief priest had have taken their time to do a little homework about the person of Christ, they would have known that Jesus did not originate from Galilee. Verse 42, the next blank says, they're perplexed about the lineage of the Christ. Has not Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Well, the answer is actually yes on both accounts. The Christ must come from Bethlehem and the Christ must come from the lineage of David. We understand that. Nobody's arguing against that. That's what is even written in the Davidic covenant when Nathan said to the prophet Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and following, it says, when the days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. It's in 2 Samuel. He's talking to David. And he said, hey, look, when you're done and gone, your offspring after you, I will raise them up from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in that Davidic covenant, there is some thought of Solomon being the one who would build the house for his name. And we understand that happened. But if you follow the whole Davidic covenant, he then says, and the throne of his kingdom will last forever. Solomon's kingdom doesn't last forever, so obviously there is some thought here about moving beyond Solomon to David's ultimate son, the Lord Jesus, who is from the tribe of Judah and who was a son of David. And that's said more concisely even in Psalm chapter 89, verses 3 and 4, where we read, you have, you have heard it said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever, and build your throne for all generations. So we understand what the Pharisees are saying is right. Yes, Jesus must come from David. David was from Bethlehem. David was of the tribe of Judah. It's Micah chapter 5, verse 2 that says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. We understand the Old Testament prophets are pointing to the Messiah, the Christ, the prophet, is a son of David, born in Bethlehem, and coming from the tribe of Judah. And so some of the chief priests and Pharisees are saying, well, Jesus can't be this because he didn't fulfill this because he's from Galilee. They were blinded, they never did their research, or maybe they did, and they just didn't want to admit it. Maybe they're thinking, ooh, we could pull a fast one on the crowd and make the crowd think, oh, he's from Galilee, not from Jerusalem or Bethlehem outside of Jerusalem. They were just blinded. They were so hard-hearted, they were so set on rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ that they would go to any lengths to deny the truth. And the same is true today. People reject Christ because they will not have him. 
They will not have him up in their world. They will not have him change their course, and they will not have him remove certain idols from their lives. They like their lives just the way they are. And so no matter what you say about Jesus, they just won't have it. They don't want to consider the fact that they're dead wrong because then everything would have to change and the kind of life that they're living would be totally different. See, the world likes sex outside of marriage. The world loves the idea of drinking alcohol until you get a buzz. The world loves the idea of smoking marijuana. The world loves the love of money. The world loves to have power over others. The world loves inflating fame. The, lo- the, the world loves man's approval or anything else that feeds the flesh. And when you go with Jesus and you're going contrary to all these things that appeal to our flesh, and so the world says, no, 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 Jesus can't be the Savior. Nobody could ever be raised from the dead. That, that's scientifically impossible. And so the arguments that their world offers are similar to try to push Jesus away from the person that might be considering the fact that he really is the Lord of all. And this leads us to a people who are divided. In fact, your next blank says divided over the acceptance of Christ. There in verse 43 and 44, we see, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This word division means a schism. It is a condition resulting from splitting or tearing apart. And some wanted to arrest Jesus, and some wanted to hear him more. Some wanted him punished, and others wanted him to continue to preach so they could watch and learn. Some wanted uh, this, this, this to be done where he was just arrested, but no one was willing to lay a hand on him. And so we read about this division a couple more times in the next few chapters. Look over at John chapter 9. Again, people divided about Christ. John chapter 9, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So again, they're trying to make another straw man argument, saying, Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus doesn't keep the Sabbath like we do, therefore he can't be from God. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? He had just healed the man born blind. And then what do we read? The end of verse 16. And there was a division among them. Skip over to chapter 10. John chapter 10, more division about Christ. John chapter 10 and verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. So the fact is, Jesus had warned us all along that he came to bring division. Did you know that? Jesus came to divide. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12, just to be reminded of this familiar saying of Christ that ought to be kind of ringing in our ears at about this moment where Jesus says this, Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather, what? Division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, that may be hard to believe except for that last part, but the idea is simply that Jesus came to bring division. He's not targeting families to split them up. What he's doing is drawing a dividing line between believers and unbelievers. And within the same family, 
between a husband and a wife, a mom and a dad, a sister and a brother, a mother and her daughter, father and his son, there will be division because only those who stand with Christ are going to go with Christ. And those who reject Christ are not going with Christ. And you may be thinking at this point, well, well, wait a second, wasn't there that Christmas prophecy of Luke chapter 2 where the angels gathered around and said, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased? I thought Jesus came to bring peace, and now he's talking about he came to bring a sword. How can that be? How can it be that he's dividing? And the answer is this. Jesus came to bring peace between you and God. Jesus came to bring peace between you and other believers, but not between a believer and an unbeliever. Jesus came, according to 1 John, that we might have fellowship with God through Christ and fellowship with one another, but not to have fellowship with the world. Jesus came to divide believers from unbelievers. He came to divide truth from error. He came to divide light from darkness. He came to divide the righteous from the lawless. He came to divide those who are alive from those who are dead. And we might all bleed the same. But we have different priorities and different responsibilities from those who reject Christ. We might all be created in the image of God. And there's a great amount of love that ought to be had for all mankind. But our allegiance is to the Lord Jesus and to Him alone. We might all have exposure to general revelation when we see the sun or we see the mountains or the ocean. But because of the special revelation of this book that Christians hold to, the glories of heaven and the love of people are all seen through the gospel of Jesus Christ calling people to come to him. The gospel divides. That's what it does. The gospel divides. And so we could say this, that the gospel brings division to the world, but it brings unity to the church. The gospel divides Again, light from darkness. That's an important division to make. But the gospel does not divide believers. Not the true gospel. The true gospel, the fact that God is holy. Man is sinner. Christ alone is Savior. Repentance and faith are the only way into heaven. Ought not to divide any true believer. We ought to all believe if we're in God's universal church in the gospel. Otherwise, you're not in. Right? That, that, that is clear. So the idea here, again, is those who are divided are unbelievers being divided from the believers. So we've seen those who have received Christ. We've seen those who have rejected Christ. And now our third position of responding to Christ's words of John 7 are those who ridiculed Christ. Those who ridiculed Christ. Your next blank says this, the officer's inability to arrest Jesus. Look at verses 45 and 46. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? If you remember from last week, the Pharisees had sent a delegation of officers to go arrest Jesus. And when they got there, they weren't able to lay a hand on Jesus. They weren't able to do it. Why not? Because Jesus wasn't about to go a moment before his time. He wasn't going to go until his time had come. And so the chief priests are a little upset with these officers saying, why didn't you bring him? To which they responded, no one ever spoke like this man. In other words, they were stunned. They were dazed as they go in to arrest Jesus and they hear him teaching. Remember, Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as one of the scribes. Remember, Jesus taught in a way that no one was able to answer him a word and no one dared to ask him 
any more questions. So the officers who went in to arrest him were trained by the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Levites, and that, that, for that reason, Jesus' words left them confused. They were used to teachings from certain rabbis that would quote certain things, that would focus on the external customs of their faith. They were used to predictable teaching that they were familiar with, but Jesus was totally different. He spoke about the love of God. He spoke about forgiveness. He spoke about God's grace. He talked about the beauty of coming to repentance and faith in Christ. And so these officers simply didn't know what to do with Jesus. And so when the officers reported back to the Pharisees that they had not arrested him, they're ridiculed. These officers are then ridiculed. Or your next blank says this, the Pharisees' mockery of faith in Christ. The Pharisees here make a mockery of anybody who's even contemplating faith in Christ. And so in verses 47 and 48, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, the Pharisees accused the officers of being deceived, and that word deceived means to go astray, to be misled, to wander around aimlessly. The Pharisees simply can't believe that these officers they had trained didn't have more discernment to realize that Christ is not Christ. They can't believe that the officers didn't finish their mission that they didn't finish the drill, that they didn't follow their orders to arrest Jesus. And so the Pharisees began to mock the idea of anybody believing in Jesus. And then they argue that since none of the authorities of the Pharisees have believed in Jesus, then neither should they. In other words, if religious experts of the law of Jerusalem at that time don't recognize Jesus as the Christ, then neither should you. That's a little top-heavy. That's coming down saying, we don't believe it, neither should you. You've got to check with us first. And that's just the problem with the pharisaical system. They didn't really understand the priesthood of every believer. They didn't understand the responsibility of each individual to be accountable to God. It says that the Bible teaches we really should look to Christ and to the Word, not to men. Right? The idea of the pharisaical system was the opposite of that. They would look to their rules that were added to the Scripture, not to Christ. They would look at the human authorities and not to Christ. And here's how this argument still works itself out today. People are tempted to to look at respected scientists who tell us about the origin of the universe and not to believe in the Bible. People are tempted to look at psychiatrists and psychologists who tell us about the interaction between the mind and the soul instead of looking at the Word of God. People are tempted to listen to what politicians have to say and what Hollywood has to say and what respected sports players have to say. Just because they can catch a football and score a touchdown, maybe they're right on morality. It's ridiculous, right? People look to to anything except those who look to Christ. And then they begin to mock us and they, they make a mockery of our faith and they laugh and they scorn and they ridicule the exclusivity of our faith, the basis of our faith and the person of our faith who is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has been arrested from having a voice in the public square. Oh, you can believe in Jesus in your heart. You can teach Jesus in your home. You can keep Jesus relegated to the pew of your church. But as soon as you get him out into the public view, you will be ridiculed. They will hold you in contempt. But the truth is that some of these authorities actually did believe. They're saying, hey, none of us have believed. You've got to wait for us to give the go-ahead. But some of them did. 
In fact, look at John chapter 12, verse 42, just to show the Jews didn't really know what's going on. We read in John 12, 42, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. So we're told there were many. There were many. It doesn't say a few. It says there were many who believed in him, but they were afraid. How about John 19, 38? Shows us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. He was a prominent man. He was a rich businessman that people knew about. He was the one in whom they placed the body of Jesus in his tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a believer. How about John 19, 39? Nicodemus also, who earlier came to Jesus by night, he seems to be concerned in a healthy way. He seems to be a believer in Christ by this point of John 19, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and 75 pounds of weight of things to help preserve the body of Christ. And so what we see here is that the Pharisees were wrong. Many of the authorities did believe, respected men like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. This leads us to verse 49, back in our text, where we read about the irony, your next blank, the irony of the chief priests and Pharisees' perception. Look at how bad it had gotten, but this crowd, the Pharisees are saying, that does not know the law is accursed. So they're now saying, "Uh uh-oh, the crowd who's starting to follow Jesus, they're accursed because they don't really know the law. The Pharisees rebuked the crowd for not knowing the law, and by this they meant God's law blended with their own law, which has no authority or bearing whatsoever. Whenever you mix God's truth with your own truth, you have a lie. Whenever you mix God's word with your own word, you have something that's fallible. Whenever you mix God's law with your own law, you have legalism. And so when they say these people are cursed because they're not following our law, they're adding to God's word extra things that were never given. And so now they're saying these people are basically accursed because they're not legalists like us. That word accursed means to be pronounced as outside of the realm of the sacred. It means to be under divine condemnation. They're saying all of these crowd that's now looking to Christ, they're accursed. The irony here is it wasn't the crowd that was accursed, but it was the Pharisees who were cursed. It was the chief priests who were cursed. As we read throughout the Bible in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Galatians 1, 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. In other words, the scripture condemns the Pharisee. The scripture condemns the chief priest who says that those who are following Jesus are accursed and said, no, 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 actually you guys are accursed. It's not those who follow Christ who are accursed, but those who reject him. It's not those who consider Christ's words who are accursed, but those who scorn them. It's not those who listen to Jesus who are accursed, but those who ridicule him. And so what we're seeing here is four responses to Jesus. Some received him, some rejected him, some ridiculed him. Our fourth one is there are some who researched Jesus. Your next blank says Nicodemus' previous interaction with Jesus. There's some who are researching. They're still digging, still thinking about it. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before 
and who was one of them, said to them, Paul's right there, just remember Nicodemus has already been by night, John chapter 3, asking Jesus who he was, where he was from. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And it goes from there to here. This is the second time we hear about Nicodemus and John, and we see he's in process. He's in process. He's still thinking about it. Nicodemus was, he's one of them. Notice verse 50 said, uh, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them. So this is one of the Pharisee-type people. This is one of the religious leaders of the day. And Nicodemus, he, he would have been respected as a religious elite. He would have been a ruler of the Jews. He would have been in the who's who of the Jerusalem high life. And Nicodemus, he's sincere and he's teachable. So what does he say? Verse 51, your next blank, Nicodemus appropriately applies God's law. He appropriately applies God's law. Verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Likely, Nicodemus, being an expert teacher of the law himself, might have been thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where it's written, and I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. That's what Nicodemus is likely referring to. It made it clear that there ought to be no favoritism. There ought to be no impartiality. It made it clear that God is the judge and only his word can help us see whether what Jesus is doing is consistent with what was prophesied about him or not. Kind of reminds us of maybe where we go a lot of times when we talk about this concept is Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18 verse 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right till the other comes and examines him. In other words, anytime you're starting to judge somebody based on a first hearing of a situation, you're acting like a Pharisee, right? We have to give the right judgment, getting the whole story, comparing it with the word of God. This is the grace and the fairness that we should show other Christians. And because of this principle, we should be quick to listen to James who says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And that's how Nicodemus was. He wants to play it fair. He wants the truth to stand for itself. He's advocating for justice. Nicodemus sees now how clear this hypocrisy is of these Pharisees in the way that they're handling this case. Nicodemus was into further research and further consideration, and the Pharisees wanted to can Jesus right there on the spot. Also reminds me of how Paul, in his second missionary journey, after he leaves Thessalonica, heads into Berea, and in Acts 17.10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Remember that? It's what we oftentimes say like, hey, you need to be a good Berean. You need to take what's being said. You need to consider what's being said. You need to do further research to see if what's being said is true. That, that's a teachable spirit. 
That's the kind of attitude that God will always honor. That's what it's all about is comparing everything you hear to Scripture to see whether or not it's found in the Word of God. Don't compare everything you hear with MacArthur. Please. Don't compare everything you hear with biblical counseling resources. And I happen to be a fan of both of those, right? Don't compare everything you hear with your favorite podcast, your favorite theologian, or your favorite Puritan. For crying out loud, compare what you hear to the Bible. There's only one authority, and it's the Word of God. And that's what we need to be doing as a people, is understanding that this is what we need to do. We need to take it to the Lord in prayer with Scripture to see what's going on. That's what Nicodemus is suggesting. And then what happens to him? Your last blank, Nicodemus is ostracized by the religious authorities. Verse 52, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so now the Pharisees are starting to mock Nicodemus. Are you one of them? Are you got to be kidding me, Nicodemus. Are you becoming like one of these Christ followers? And then they challenge Nicodemus, go ahead and search the scriptures and you'll find that no one comes from Galilee. Well, it is true that the Messiah would not be from Galilee, as we've already discussed, that he would be from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, son of David. But these religious leaders were overlooking the fact that Jonah was born in Galilee, according to 2 Kings 14.25. Some other Old Testament scholars say that Nahum and Hosea and possibly even other prophets were from Galilee. But these religious leaders implied that Nicodemus was ignorant of spiritual truth by the fact that they were the only ones who could carte blanche declare Christ as Christ or not. But the fact is they had not done their research. You ever found the same is true as you're evangelizing with people and you're sharing the gospel and somebody says, well, the Bible's full of errors. And you're like, oh, would you show me one? Here, here it is. Why don't you go ahead and show me one? So many times they're like, well, scholars say, you know, have you done your research? Have you ever read about Christ? Have you read the gospel of John? Let me encourage you before you make your decision that you would come and read about the Savior and see him in all of his glory before you make that kind of decision. The truth is, if we're standing with Christ like Nicodemus here and purporting the idea of looking to the Bible, you're going to be persecuted. I left a cross-reference in there from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And it's implied, so will you be persecuted. Like, just prepare for it, right? We, we are all going to face this kind of ridicule as long as we're standing with Christ. As long as we're standing with the Lord Jesus Christ and with his word, taking it literally, we will be ridiculed and we will be mocked. But you know what? I'd rather be persecuted with Christ than to be loved by the world. I'd rather be mocked by the culture than to be judged by God. I'd rather suffer now than suffer later. I'd rather be seen as one of God's adopted children than to be a son or a daughter of hell. I'll go with Jesus any day. It might take me to my grave. I've already decided all my hope is in Christ. I've already decided all of my joy is in Christ. I've already decided all of my worth and all of my value and my identity is wrapped up with who Jesus is. I believe all of him. And I'm asking you today, do you have the right answer? Have you surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ 
Is he the Lord of your life? How would you respond? One of these four or something else? A couple more thoughts as we close. I got this from J.C. Ryle. Just think about it. These take-home statements, rather, statements today. How useless in knowledge, in religion, how useless is knowledge in religion if it is not accompanied by the grace in the heart? You know what he's saying? These chief priests and Pharisees apparently knew it all. They didn't really know it all, but they thought they knew it all, but they lacked grace. They lacked true grace, the grace of God. Knowledge is useless without the grace of God in your heart, in your life, helping you respond in a kind, gracious way. Number two, how powerful must have been our Lord's gifts as a public teacher of the truth. I would have just loved to have been there to hear Christ teaching in such a way where the officers are coming in, they're about to arrest Jesus, and they're going up, and they're like, oh, oh, listen to what he's saying. It must have gripped them and stunned them. How powerful must have been our Lord's gifts as a public teacher of the truth. Last, how slowly and gradually the work of grace goes on in some hearts. He's referring there to Nicodemus, who got a good taste of Christ's teaching in John 3, here in John 7, we're not sure he's all the way there yet. He's just like, hey, we got to play it fair. And then it's not until John 19 that we're like, all right, I'm all in. I'm all in. Now I believe and I want to take care of Christ. So the question again is, where do you stand with Christ? Do you have the right answer? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at John chapter 7 again this morning and just to be reminded of these truths of what Jesus has said and how various ones responded in different ways. And we just pray for the grace to respond rightly. God, we know it's not us. It's not our work, our effort, our intellect. It's only the sovereign grace of God that can help us to respond to the teaching of Christ by saying he is the prophet, he is the Messiah, he is the Christ. And I pray that you would do that work in children's hearts, and in teenagers' hearts, and in university students' hearts, and in adults' hearts today, that as we've read through this passage today, God, that we would want to come a-running to Christ to learn from Him and all of His teaching, both in what He said as recorded in the Gospels and what is recorded throughout the entire Bible, the Word of God. I pray, God, that You would do a work in our church. Help us not to be ashamed. Help us not to run. Help us not to be afraid of ridicule. Help us to expect it, to lean into it as we identify with Christ, the only answer for our hearts and for the world today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.